Welcome to episode 159 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. I'm sure it comes as no surprise when I tell you that I'm an outgoing extrovert. It's true, no one has ever mistaken me for a wallflower. Even so, I have my own insecurities that can get in the way of making great connections. Actually, I had an experience like this at a conference I attended recently. I knew quite a few people in attendance and was always going out of my way to invite folks to join me for a meal or drinks. One night, I was sitting with a few friends having a late night snack when a large group came into the restaurant for drinks. They gathered around a row of tall tables and were basically having a little cocktail party. My friends and I actually knew several people in this large group and had been hoping to catch up with them at some point during the event. At first, we didn't even notice they had come into the room. Then someone from the group came over to say hello. After a quick chat, they returned to the large group and a few minutes later, one of the people I'm sitting with asks, are we at the kids table? I replied, only in our heads. There was nothing about the scene that made me logically think I was being excluded, and yet we didn't exactly feel welcomed either. When we finally wandered over to the large group, everyone was extremely friendly. I got into several really good conversations with people I wanted to get to know better. I also met lots of new people, including potential podcast guests. I ended up shutting down the bar that night because I was having such a great time. This got me thinking about why a friendly hello from someone in the group was not enough to make me feel like I could join them with ease. Turns out there's a difference between friendly and intentionally inclusive. If that friendly person had said, join us for a drink when you're done with your food, there would have been zero ambiguity about whether we were invited to join them. Without that, the stories in our heads almost kept us from going over to say hello. Your challenge for this week. Can you think of a time when the voices in your head kept you from saying hello? What about a time when it was super clear you're being welcomed into a group? Whenever you have the opportunity, wave over someone who is lurking near your networking cluster. Be intentional about invitations and try to eliminate any doubt about your sincerity. It's remarkable how these little gestures can help others feel like they belong. Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, onto this week's show. Today's guest has been called the best connected Silicon Valley figure you've never heard of. She's a veteran editor, curator, content strategist, and connector of people and ideas. Her passion for all forms of communication has carried her for over 30 years in the technology business as a writer, editor, and communications pro with long stints at Google and Twitter. Her evocation is connecting people, which led her to write, Taking the Work Out of Networking, an Introvert's Guide to Making Connections Count. True to her introvert nature, she's more likely to be connecting from the comfort of her laptop than working a room at conferences. Please join me in welcoming Karen Wickery. Hey, Robbie. Thank you for having me. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Karen, from your office in San Francisco. It's a real pleasure to connect with another author who's focused on this topic. As you know, this is a show about building great networks, and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I, I would define it, there's a phrase that I love um, that is probably used more in, um, in law than anything else, the phrase of good counsel. 
someone who is of good counsel. And that's how I think of a good leader, uh, someone who uh, knows how to uh, counsel in the best possible way, which, which involves good listening, uh, empathy, you know, good EQ, a good observer of human nature. Um, and uh, someone, I think a real leader recognizes that the world is bigger than the workplace so that it's not all about, you know, the task list and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that for me, frankly, just I grew into uh, being a leader uh, in various ways, in part simply by getting older and having a better grip of that kind of understanding of the relationship of people and work and so on. Um, and I'm also someone who I, I am observant. And so I look at, I notice people's behavior. I notice, you know, people's anxiety or concerns. And I, I work to uh, allay them as much as I can. But I've also found, I mean, I've had these experiences where I've also been the one to give, have the tough conversation. And uh, I have fired people. I have um, kind of, re, you know, put people on, uh, some kind of uh, you know plan or something like that, and so it, it's a it's good to know I'm capable of doing that. Obviously, that's not a fun part of being a leader, but I think it goes with of being good uh, of good counsel, where uh, you know you're being you're letting people know, hey, this this isn't okay, this is not acceptable, this is not the deal. And so, um, to be a good leader can do all of that. Can be uh, warm and engaging is always paying attention to what other, what's going on with people um, and, uh, and also can kind of pull back and say, um, you know, for the good of the company, the team, even of yourself, uh, we got to make some changes here. Mm-hmm. So it's all of that in one. I really appreciate how you're talking about the, that one piece of this that I haven't really heard people say is that, that they understand the world is bigger than the office. Yeah. Um, yeah. And don't lose sight of that because that also helps them have empathy for their team who they totally. hopefully believe have a life outside the office. And well, we all do, whether or not people, yeah. <laughs> we all do. So, you know, life intervenes at work all the time, right? In terms of, you know, your, your own mental state, your ability to perform because of what's going on at home. Right. Um, and so to the extent that, I mean, this is why I think, you know, people operations uh, need to be, you know, as adept and contemporary as they can about this stuff with employee assistance programs and all that. But but also, I mean, leaders and managers have to be really flexible and creative in figuring out what's fair for someone, um, you know, when life intervenes and, and uh, you know, what, what, um, how, what's a humane way of of treating people when they're having, you know, issues outside the office, which will affect them in the office. Yeah, and absolutely. So you were talking about how you sort of earned your way, <clears throat> you earned your way into the, the, the idea of being a leader by virtue of growing older and wiser. Essentially, <laughs> yeah. I'm saying. But I'm curious, when you were much younger, when you were a little kid on a playground, uh, when you were in junior high and high school, who were you then? Were you kind of outspoken? Were you still that introvert? 
like, you know, introverts can be shy and, and reclusive or they can be outgoing and just need right. to go home and recharge. Right. <laughs> so did people all know and love you? Did you run for office or were you just like doing your thing and just kind of moving through the world? Um, as a little kid, I was very bookish. I mean, I just, I, I frankly didn't want to be on the playground. I'd rather be inside reading a book. I think uh, in my kind of teenage years, that's when I kind of got a clue that uh, I didn't think of myself so much as an introvert, uh, but I did care about, I mean, all, all kids this age, especially girls, I think, want to be liked. So I, I was conscious of wanting to be liked. And the way that I did that is, I mean, I was interested in all kinds of people and I wanted, I was friendly with like all the different kind of subcategories in high school, for example. Um, but one thing I, I did was I, I had information. I was, a, I was someone to go to if you wanted to know something. And the things to know were like, whose parents are away this weekend? And where are we having a party? You know, that, that kind of thing. But I always knew what was going on. And so I was kind of like an outpost of information, which I now realize is an interesting thing, given, you know, all that's happened in the rest of my life. Uh, and, and so, um, being conscious of being an introvert, I think probably came to me a little later, but I did always like alone time and, um, always needed to sort of regroup and recharge by myself. So I love this piece about you being, um, the information, you know, gathering source. Um, I was just reading Never Eat Alone by Keith Razi. And, you know, he talks a lot about power these days is in giving away um, knowledge, is, is in giving away information is how he says it. And um, I've always practiced the philosophy of abundance. So I believe if you give away time or money, then you have less time or money. But if you go give away knowledge, that kind of, it, it, it multiplies for you and them. Like it just, it's a multiplier to do that. Um, it doesn't take anything away from you and it adds value to that relationship and it possibly creates great things for them. And, um, and it sounds like you found a way to attract people to you, which is a great thing for an introvert to do because you don't want to have to run around getting people's attention. No, um, exactly. And people were like, hey, Karen, what's going on this weekend? Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I was also, I think from that, around that age, also I started, I, I would play a game with myself, which was to say, if, if people, you know, wanted to, if somebody knew I was getting to know or something, the game was, I'm going to make you tell me about you first. I'm not going to give up too much early in the conversation. I'm going to size you up while you're talking to me. I was just always aware that that's how I wanted it to be. I, I just didn't want to go first, right? In, in terms yeah. of talking, I wanted to hear more and I think then that let me kind of gauge, okay, this is this kind of person. This is, this is someone I really like, or I want to, I'm, I'm willing to trust them with this kind of information. Uh, but it, it's always been that way for me. So it kind of goes right into the great Terry Gross, uh, who also uh, has, has like affirmed my uh, magic question, which is tell me about yourself, right? That's a, like the best way to like, opened with somebody you don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, that's, that's sort of been my approach always with, uh, with people. And like I say, calling it introversion came later, but that, that's a key part of it. And while for most of us, and I, I'm going to 
definitely count myself in this category. I'm an outgoing extrovert. We have to be taught to speak less and listen more and use our ears and mouth in proportion uh, to the conversation and often um, struggle at first to do that. And it, it sounds like you were practicing what we now see as sort of the best behavior to have in a getting to know you situation, right? Like ask people about themselves, give them a, a, pl- a place to sort of share, show up, yeah. um, engage with them on what's important to them as opposed to like speaking, you know, volumes, often while still holding the person's hand. <laughs> you know, those, those people are still out there, unfortunately. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, but you're, you, it's interesting that you had that as sort of a, 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 a little thing that you already were aware of or at least playing with at that age. Yeah. I think for me, honestly, it came as much from insecurity as anything else, but nonetheless, it, it was a good tactic for sort of like, mm-hmm. oh no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not giving it up first. You're giving it up first. And I could always make other people talk first. So where did, where did you go from there? I mean, um, you know, you, you have, you don't realize you have a strength. Uh, you know, yeah. you don't realize it's an asset yet. Um, but I'm sure it did, did well for you as you started to connect and meet with people. How did, how did you go from there to, to like the world that you ended up existing in with a Silicon Valley and just, what was that trajectory like? Was it, was it a path or was it a broken road? It was, uh, you know, a, a broken road. I mean, I had, I was a liberal arts, uh, major. So I had, I had no specific career plans. I just knew I had to work. And so I had, you know, all kinds of jobs. I had a whole sort of nonprofit career before I got to tech. Um, I, I mean, I, I knew whatever I did would involve writing and editing because that always came easily to me. But beyond that, I, I just, you know, it was like one job to another. The big, uh, I would say I saw glimpses of myself being a leader reflected back to me in people I worked with just, you know, uh, on in various jobs in my twenties, for example, um, where I, I noticed people would look to me for my opinion or, you know, want to, you know, get my sense of things before they moved ahead in one direction or really wanted to know what I thought. So that was kind of a clue, although I didn't really, uh, put that much into it at that time. Um, when I had, uh, I had moved West from the East coast. I, I I'm from Washington, DC originally. And, um, I ended up in, um, San Francisco running a small nonprofit for journalists and media. Cause I've always been a big media nut media consumer. And, and one of my board members was an early, um, it was early days of the personal computer. And he was the publisher of a couple of the early popular um, computer magazines, PC Magazine and PC World in particular. So he took a liking to me. I mean, I got to know him because he was my board member. And he offered me a job at the magazine company. And I mean, I had no, I was not an early computer user. I didn't know anything about that world. But one thing surprising to me I was willing to take leaps into the unknown for some reason. And so I did. And so that kicked off my whole subsequent career in technology. And it happened, you know, it was in the mid eighties. And so that was kind of a boom time for personal computers, but then plenty of other booms came after that. And, you know, lots of other waves. And I, once I was in it, I was in it and I just, I really liked 
the the world of of technology, personal technology. And so I stayed in it. And then that was it, it just like I didn't have a plan. Let's just mm-hmm. say but yeah. the waves, the waves took me along. And then it, it it became more like, oh, now I have a story to tell, and now I have a framing for everything that I'm gonna make make sense. But I, it didn't start out that way. Did you have a mentor along the way that that was helping you find the guideposts? I mean, really, the the main one was this guy named David Bennell, who who hired me basically on instinct, just because he, uh, I think he felt comfortable with me for some reason, and he was kind of shy and he was kind of nerdy, and I was a little bit of an interpreter for him once I got into his company. Um, but it was his instinct entirely. And, and he, he certainly showed me, you know, there was already a big world of trade shows and a million computer magazines and all that, that I didn't know. Um, but I think the, the more important kind of mentoring thing was he was a risk taker and I, it wasn't that I jumped into being wild when it came to risks, but I saw that uh, in this kind of new, quickly unfolding, quickly evolving world, um, you you could kind of make up your own, you know, story and change it over. It was okay to change, you know, that that's probably the biggest thing. And that there weren't a lot of um, consequences as we might've been taught in the early days about, you know, always needing like an exact chronology on your resume and always needing you know, some guy across the desk is going to say, what, what were you doing during the next six months? That's, you know, not accounted for. You know, what's so interesting is that I feel like what you're describing from the eighties is what people graduating from college in the last 10 years uh, and in the next 10 years are experiencing. Yeah. they, They can't be expected to have a chronology um, you know, my dad worked at the same place until he was in his 40s and the job moved and he decided not to move with it. And that meant in the mid 40s, he had to come up with a new way of being. Yeah. Which wasn't his plan. Yeah. <laughs> like if the job yeah, had exactly. stayed, he would have stayed. And I think he around that time, he said to me, uh, it was actually about five years later, I turned 20 and he said, he read this somewhere, that I would have four careers between 20 and 40. And it was a mindset for me to think that way. And I actually left my day job as a fund, I was doing fundraising for a nonprofit. I left that career um, at 39 years old to pursue speaking and coaching full time because I thought, you know what? I've got time for one more before 40. (laughs) I might as well pull this, make this happen. And um, I think most people, like, you know, if you're talking about the 80s, most people weren't doing that. So now you now there are peers now there are there are there are digital nomads <laughs> there That's are people right. to right. turn to. What was it like to build a community and a network in that space when most people went to work in a nine to five and they did their job for thirty five years and that was their plan? Like, what was I it like? Add, yeah, my parents were from that Depression era generation too, where they were find a good job and keep it right and get benefits and get a pension, right? That whole, so they couldn't understand either either the fact that I, I think until I was, I was past 50 before I had a job more than four years, 
you know, and so they, that was a worry, right, for them. But uh, I have to say, you know, the world of technology in Silicon Valley in particular from the 80s on um, was, was the world I fell into. And here people did change jobs and change career and change direction uh, quite often. I mean, it was more, much more the norm because companies would fall away or get acquired and new, new ones spring up all the time. And new technologies, you know, spawn sort of new lines of work and business and everything. It's happened. It's happened. You know, my my early days. You know, everyone was all in on CD-ROMs, right? Well, now some of them may be in on publishing of some sort, but you know, I sort of followed along with those uh, with those trends too. But it it, it just it's much more uh, the norm. It's much more expected, and it's fine to. Uh, move around and reinvent yourself and come up with something new and change course a lot. And I continue to see that, I have to say, uh, right up to today, uh, uh, all around the, the Bay Area. But I think it's not only here anymore, right? Because people, as you say, are they're independent, they're working in distributed, uh, you know, form, uh, you know, it, it kind of, you can be, you can be a nomad, um, you can change course a bit, you can certainly get into a startup in a new area, all those things are happening and it, it's much more widespread now. But I think it did, I, I watched it kind of, and it seemed like the the uh, absolutely okay thing to do in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that gave you permission, even yes. though it, it gave your parents agita. <laughs> right. <laughs> it gave them like, ah. But, yeah. but I'm seeing everybody around me do the same. Yeah. So, so what does it mean in that context? Because I think this could be informative for today as well. What does it mean in that context to build a network? Ah, well, in a way, it's it's a it's kind of a given. I mean, you're you're going to because people do move around. So uh, the fact that you you know, it's almost like you see someone you haven't seen, and you say, "Where are you now?" Right? I mean. What, what what's the latest with you? What are you doing now? We have tools like LinkedIn so that you can have a sense of where people are. And I have to say, having written this book and now hearing from a lot of people from my past, it's interesting. People I, you know, have no regular contact with. Um, I may, uh, who I'll get in touch with for some reason and they'll say, Oh, I've been watching, you know, how you're doing and what you're doing now. What, because you know, we post the, we post updates at least about ourselves to some degree on LinkedIn as the, as this kind of professional place. So to me, I think the, the one thing that I kind of have always done by instinct is keep in touch with people. And so it, it's easier to do now in, in terms of all the digital ways you can keep in touch with people. But I was always someone, even back to my high school and college days where I kind of knew what people were up to. Uh, I, I just had enough bits of information from people who would, you know, let me know. And so now it's just easier to sort of know that and reach out to people very intermittently. It's, you don't have to have a long standing uh, relationship and, and correspondence to like uh, uh, to, to be in touch. You can, I just literally this morning wrote to, um, a tech reporter here who I've known of for 20 years. And 
I mean, we're on Twitter together, you know, I'm sure we're hooked up on LinkedIn. I, I sent an email and said, Hey, could I get you to come to my client's office and give a talk? And he wrote back in like five minutes. Right. I mean, so we're, we're connected. He's in the network. Right. And um, that to me, it, it's never been easier to do. Uh, um, and it's, and it's again, really okay to be informal and intermittent about it. Uh, you know, you're making me think of um, a friend of mine who, who was on this show um, way back, uh, episode 27, long time ago, Iris, um, Iris Pollitt. And she is originally a nonprofit like me and made the shift into tech. And whenever I'm talking to her and she's been, been bouncing around, it's because someone who used to work at a company with her mm-hmm. moved to another company mm-hmm. and then either recruited her or they all went out for drinks and someone said, hey, what's going on? Oh, that sounds interesting. And then that's how people all migrate. Uh, and then someone else leaves and goes to another you know, competitor or another part of the sector. And, it, and it, I think in some ways, the networking, like you said, almost comes more naturally because you know people and have, have worked with people. And now they're in these far-flung organizations. Whereas if you stay in one place for 30 years, well, you know, sort of deeply yeah. one group. <laughs> right, right. But, you have to work harder to, to make all those outside contacts where yeah. I mean, it is the norm for people. And again, I, I don't think this is strictly within tech anymore, but it is uh, a sign of a very fluid kind of um, job scene where someone at work will say, does anyone know someone, somebody over at company X? Because I have a question about how they do something or, you know, I, I'd like, and it's not a job hunting thing. It's just more like, who do we know at that place to like get to the bottom of this or to ask mm-hmm. something? Someone is going to know. Oh, yeah, I have a friend. Oh, yeah, my roommate. Oh, yeah, the guy down the hall. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll connect you. Like that's a, that's a really like simple and very uh, common interaction that happens. Uh, because people do know, you know, socially um, and sometimes through past jobs and so on, people at a bunch of other companies. I want to hear a little bit, um, Karen, about the work you're doing today, but not, I want to hear your usual spiel because I want to ask it a little different and see what, what comes up. <laughs> um, what do you find most rewarding about the work you're getting to do now? You know, partly it's that this avocation of mine about connecting people and being kind of a conduit is, has come to the forefront. I mean, it is still, it, it is just my nature. It, it is my avocation. That's partly why I wrote the book, but it's interesting also to see uh, that it's, it's become, um, it's something I want to encourage others to do, but it's also something that um, people look to me for uh, and it has more um, professional value as it, as it were. I'm working right now uh, part-time with a a communications advisory firm. And part of the reason that I am is that the head of the office is fairly new to San Francisco. And he said, I'd love to get your help to introduce me around and to help me get better known. And who tell you, tell me who I should know, you know? And so like, that's, that's a nice, you know, sort of confirmation of, Oh, this this has value. Yeah, absolutely, it has value. Yeah. It's, it sounds like 
um, given all things being equal, that's what puts you ahead, right? Like, um, yeah, and, and, they, and they see that as, as a value. Um, I once actually, um, this is so funny that I'm thinking of this, but I, I once organized, I actually did this for several years, but the first year I organized an unconference. Oh, yeah. um, and I know you're in tech, so you know what that is. So there's, you yes. know, all the, uh, for those listening, uh, the sessions aren't planned till that morning. And it was two people um, who were kind of running it. One was from the DC area. He had um, lived in Boston growing up, and but he was now moving back as an adult. So he didn't know anyone. And the other person had been in Boston for six months and didn't know anyone. And they were very eager to do this program. It was mm-hmm. part of a, a national organizing institute. It was a big deal thing, Roots Camp, you know. And they wanted to bring it to the state. And so I sort of got plugged in and I said, I have very little time, but I have a ton of connections. And so that first year, my major contribution was making sure that we had all the resources we needed. We knew all the right people. We had the venue. Yeah. Like all the things it's hard to do if you just don't know anyone in town. No, that's right. Um, and it's, it's it really interesting to think about like the value of my participation in that three person sort of organizing team mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and we could really you know we don't we don't always bill ourselves that way um we don't always think of ourselves as having that value but that could be you know part of what you're trying to teach people Absolutely. by writing this i mean i i feel like I, I and i talk about this a little in the book the you know your network is is your currency it is part of your currency and so um obviously in some kind of jobs that have to do with uh, you know, sales or business development, you know, people want to know that you have contacts, right? Or, or you're a journalist, same idea. Um, but I think uh, it networks have currency for other kinds of people for recruiting, for ideas, for, um, you know, getting intelligence about the market or trends or, you know, uh, real world, uh, you know, testing or, you know, any number of things like that. And uh, even, even by the way, uh, as you know, for writing a book, the publisher in, in deciding if they're going to, you know, um, pay you to do it, want to know who's your network because your network is going to be a, a big part of book promotion, right? Bigger than ever, I might add, in, in the world of book publishing. And so, it really is, um, you know, a thing of value that you have. And for that reason, by the way, I would say it matters a lot how you kind of nurture it and cultivate it, right? You can't, mm-hmm. you can't run people to the ground with too many favors and you don't want to make bad connections. You don't want to make, um, you know, irrelevant connections for people. I'm very conscious about that part of it. I actually wanted to ask you this. So, you know, you have your, like innermost circle who you yeah. probably don't have to, you don't need a CRM to keep track of those right. people. You right. know? <laughs> um, and then there's like that second and third layer out, the people that you met at a conference, you see them each year at the event or you work with them five, 10, 15 years ago, but you have no reason to work with them now. Mm-hmm. How do you think about nurturing, sustaining that outer layer of your network? Like what's, do, do you have a, a plan, a philosophy, routine, habits, anything that helps you sort of stay connected or top of mind as, as needed? It's more, uh, I don't have any uh, software tools. Um, it, it's more, I think when I, because I also get kind of incoming questions or 
needs. Someone will say, do you know someone who does so-and-so or do you know anything about this? That's when I, I probably will um, look at my own contacts and just kind of skim to see if anyone comes to mind. But And sometimes look at LinkedIn, um, depending on the question, because it's handy there to say, you know, if I'm looking for a certain location uh, or, you know, a, a couple of keywords, copywriter or something like that. Um, and it's sort of between those that I'll think, who was I just talking to about this or who, who would know someone? And then I kind of add the layer of who I think would get along or be able to like get quickly to a question answer as opposed to sort of an involved transaction that might take too long. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of kind of magic sauce and happenstance, honestly, for me. Um, I'm not as organized about it as maybe I should be. <laughs> That's, I have to say, it's probably the, the number one answer that we get. <laughs> people go, yeah, I should probably do more of that. But, you yeah. know, um, it's, it's rare to find people who are super organized just because you are such a connector and yeah. a maven who clearly likes to, to collect knowledge. Um, one of the guests I had on... Um, he actually um, has a spreadsheet and he has for each person that he meets a little description of how he would introduce them in an email. Um, yeah. So that's kind of handy. His name is Michael Roderick. And um, I don't try to figure out what uh, episode he was in. I, my brain cannot work this quickly, but maybe my computer can. Um, so the idea is that he doesn't want to slow himself down when it comes time. And there's, there's a tool that I've used a little bit around this called intro.io, which uh-huh. essentially allows you to store that little bit of information uh-huh. and then insert. The way I've really used the tool is that two weeks later, I send an email to both of them through the tool that says, how was meeting so-and-so? I because see. I tell you the number one thing as a connector that I dislike is when people don't close the loop with me. Respond, yeah. Yeah. And you don't know. And just like, no, that's right. they, they all go on to make a million dollar deal. And like, <laughs> You don't even know. They forgot that they met through you. Um, so I like that people tend to then, because I ping them, mm-hmm. they write me back. By the time they write me back, I've forgotten that I made the connection. So it's right. always a pleasant like, oh, hello. Oh, that's so good to hear. Right. Oh, that is, okay. That's interesting. I might look into that because yeah. I also don't always know what, I, usually I'm happy to get out of the way, but it would be nice to know that the connection Happened. <laughs> yes. And and occasionally I've heard back from one party going, yeah, I've been trying to get in touch with them. And then I can, I could find out whether it's timing or you yeah. know, the wrong communication channel or, yeah. but I mean, part of that often gets avoided just by making sure before I make the introduction that both parties are ready for it. So. Right. Oh, I, uh, I always make sure of that. And I, I do, I guess my version of that spreadsheet is usually because people are asking for a specific thing right now about a particular thing. So I'll say, send me an email, the asker, just tell me, you know, in a paragraph, what it is you're looking for. What's the question? What's the thing you'd like to talk to that person about? Let's, let's get specific here so that I can pass that on to ask if they're willing to. And I always, I mean, 99 Point nine percent of the time, I get a yes, and then I can yeah. say, "Here's the latest thing," and now let me put you two together. Yeah, I like that strategy because it also puts the onus on the person who has the request to yes. do a little bit of work. Yeah. And I found that there are certain people when you put that back on them, and then they don't take the step. 
you're like, I guess it wasn't that important. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. it's just sort of amazing to me. Um, but that often does happen. It filters out people who really aren't making a, a, a concerted effort to show up in good faith because you don't want to bother people, you know, making no, that right. don't happen. So I think the art of introductions is such a important piece of this because there's, there's knowing people and there's knowing how to connect them. Um, that does feel like very different things. Um, and it feels a little bit like for you, you're, you're blending this, particularly with your early days of being this, I mean, the, the idea of being, um, a ma- uh, a maven, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, of just like you know, information, knowledge, and all of that was was definitely your currency back then, and it sounds like it still is today. Um, what are what are some other um, routines? Like, do you? I don't know. Do you host salons, dinners, gatherings? Are you are you an in person, like you know, one to many? Do you, <laughs> like, how do you how do you think of your time? Um, I, I don't do that. I've thought about salons and I think it would be fun to explore, but I um, have kind of I put that off for now, I think, in favor of a, of a slightly different thing that I have done a couple times. And that is to convene kind of a regular but informal group. Um, and the one I have right now, I've, I'd started about three years ago when I left Twitter because I knew I was going to work for myself. So I basically tapped, I think, three people I knew who were also consulting on their own. And then through we reached out to a couple other people that I didn't know as well. And now there are seven of us and we meet once a month and we're all sole proprietors, right? So we're talking about our own projects and sometimes we want to talk about, you know, billing questions or how we might structure a proposal for something. And sometimes it's more um, general about what we're finding and we're in kind of related fields. And by the way, we meet um, in a downtown San Francisco office building that has free Wi-Fi and tables and chairs. It's, you know, one of these like public lobbies. So we call ourselves the Labanati. Um, And... (laughs) And we just have a monthly meeting. Not everybody makes it every time, uh, but it's two hours once a month. And that I really like because now they're kind of a, now they're like a brain trust for like thinking about consulting, right? Even though we talk about other things. And I, I didn't realize till after I set it up. And one of the reasons I did, by the way, is I'm, I would be independent. I wouldn't have an office and office mates anymore. So this, this sort of, uh, you know, help with that. But years ago, um, actually around 2000, 2001, the Bay Area had a, it's the pretty, a pretty serious downturn in terms of uh, uh, jobs. I mean, just the economy really fell here at that time. Um, and uh, I had lost two jobs in one year. A bunch of other people I know couldn't find work or, you know, jobs like the hiring, there were hiring freezes on a lot of companies. So at that time, I organized kind of a support group for people who were, you know, trying to figure out what to do. And it was a little bit more about, like, help me polish my resume and help me. Uh, here's my pitch for, uh, you know, a project, uh, you know, that I want to do and trading, you know, sort of tips about things. But that went on probably more often than once a month for a year or so. So I am a convener and I think. Um, the idea of salons is appealing. Um, 
but I haven't gotten to sort of the, like, let me, I know women writers. I'm going to have a women writers salon, you know, or I haven't, I haven't kind of done it that way as, as much as maybe being tied to work is, is maybe more relevant for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it's so powerful. This idea of the seven uh, women that are gathering, um, you know, once a month or as often as they can get there. I mean, it's, it's, uh, kind of has that mastermind element, or at least like you said, the brain trust element, but going deep with a few people in your field, uh, whether you're a solopreneur or not kind of makes sense. And particularly, um, I remember I was trying to convince, um, I can't remember. So the, the executive directors had a round table in my region, uh, within an issue area. Mm-hmm. Um, but the director's development didn't Mm. And I was trying to convince them uh, to do that. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, you know, they have different things to talk about than the EDs might have. And I, and I, you know, once those barriers get broken down, like the knowledge kind of flows more easily. People jump in and help each other more frequently. Um, so I, I was organizing fundraising events. So I was doing that on, on the events manager level. <laughs> so I was trying to, I was seeing the value for me and I saw the value for the executive directors and, that, and they've been doing that for you know decades probably, but this other level sort of hadn't happened. So, you know, anybody listening can think, well, who do I know in my role in other organizations in my yeah. field and, or even in different fields, that'd be more interesting, pull them together. Yeah. Just be the, be the host. Be the and, and I, and I would yeah. add even within companies, I mean, sometimes people are a little skittish about, you know, corporate information and confidentiality and stuff, but there's a lot that people can talk about. Uh, for example, I mean, the common example that I'm familiar with is people uh, running communications teams for tech companies, have an informal network and get together every so often. I've encouraged uh, when I ran internal communications, and that's kind of a slightly more obscure area, uh, I've encouraged you know the point people who are running it to do the same kind of thing, convene the other internal communications people. There's not a thing about state secrets there. It's much more like, how do you deal with this problem? How do you, uh, you know, handle this situation or how's your, what's the structure that you use for such and such? I think it's really, I think these things are really a good idea. Yeah, really valuable. So one of my favorite questions, Karen, we're coming kind of to the, to the close of this. If, if And I'm thrilled that we are going to stay connected and that we're in we're in an online group together. Um, we've got a ton of connections in common. I actually travel out to the Bay Area a couple times a year, so I'll be looking you up. Um, I like I like the in-person when I can do it. Let's say we, we manage to cross paths a year from now and we're talking about all of the success that you've had in the, in the last year. What what are we going to be celebrating? What are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Well, well, one thing that is um, concrete is the, the um, publication of the paperback of my book, which will happen this, this coming fall. So I'm just now finishing a new chapter uh, for the book that is specifically about networking inside organizations. Um, because that's, you know, I think, I don't know how people can do a job anymore and not, you know, get to know other people across a company in different, in different teams. But in any case, so that's a, like a milestone kind of thing, uh, that is, uh, this fall. And I have a couple of interesting speaking things. I'm not, uh, someone who's signed up with a speakers bureau, as you might expect. I'm not someone who's wants to be on stage all the time. 
but kind of interesting and selective things have come to me, including a big women's conference in Boston in December uh, that I'll be coming to. Uh, so I'll look you up there. Awesome. <laughs> I love it. It's sort of like intermittent um, opportunities to talk about the book, but it's not, it's not just about the book, right? It's more about uh, some of the ideas I have. And then, uh, you know, people I meet along the way that may take me down, you know, slightly different roads and that's fine with me. So I like kind of the, a bit randomness of it and the kind of unknown of it. That's all sounds amazing. And I can't wait to, to be celebrating all that with you. Uh, how can people find you and follow your work? So I have a website. It's just my name, karenwickery.com. That's K-A-R-E-N-W-I-C-K-R-E.com. And that has info on me and uh, events and writing and more on the book and so on. I'm also very active on Twitter. And there I am at Kvox, K-V-O-X, V as in Victor. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm on there too much, but, but that's how it is. So <laughs> that's an easy way to see what I'm up to. We will have all those links in the show notes, as well as a link to your book um, at ontheschmooze.com. Karen, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks, Robbie. This was fun. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Karen. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share it resonate with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 159. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as over 150 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. With another conference season kicking off in just about a month, this is a great time to get a copy of my book, Croissants vs. Bagels, Strategic, Effective, and Inclusive Networking at Conferences. I've heard from countless people how helpful and immediately applicable the strategies in my book are, and I want to thank all of you who have already left an Amazon review, nearly 200 reviews worldwide, just over the last two years. Go get your copy and all the book's bonus content at croissantsvsbagels.com. If you enjoyed this episode with Karen, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. I look forward to connecting again next week. We'll be interviewing another talent professional about their untold stories of leadership and networking. We'll explore their career challenges, work-life balance, and how they built a strong professional network on their way to becoming a successful leader. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.